So what I'd like to do this morning then is provide kind of a little bit of an orientation for us to the book of Isaiah. So I had to go back and look when my very first sermon was preached on Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 and it was back in July 8th 2018. So it's been a little while and uh, uh, Amanda and I were talking about it and she said you know a lot of people weren't even here then Uh, so uh, you might want to just keep that in mind. I I am keeping that in mind. Uh, A lot of you were not here when we started the book of Isaiah, but what I'd like to do this morning is first of all direct you to our YouTube channel where 43 of my sermons were preserved from the book of Isaiah. That's not all of them because we didn't have a reliable way to uh, record our services at that time, but 43 of them uh, are available. So there are 43 sermons on the book of Isaiah already on our YouTube channel. And, uh, I mean, we should have just put one out on all the seats, right? Uh, That probably would have made more sense. Uh, I'll keep that in mind next time. Uh, And then the last message I preached uh, was on February 9th, 2020. So for about two years, we were in the book of Isaiah together, and we took a little bit of time off and a little bit more time than I thought. But here we are back in the book of Isaiah. So what I'd like to do is draw a little bit of a uh, kind of a, a bridge between John and Isaiah, okay? We've been in John's gospel, and we have been all through the letters of John together. So uh, we're in the mindset of John the Apostle. And so as we begin, I just wanted to ask a question just for the sake of our train of thought. We've been in John. What does John have to say about Isaiah? And a few things. So uh, here's, here's a passage from John 12. It's on the screen for you. John 12, verses 37 through 41. And it says, Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What is Isaiah's disposition toward the book or uh, excuse me, what is John's disposition of the book of Isaiah? How does he view it? And uh, I think just three things that we can say. Uh, First of all, that John was familiar with the book of Isaiah as scripture. Did you see that? As he's quoting from Isaiah, not only familiar with it as scripture, but just familiar with it generally speaking. Now, it's it's a great thing for us, and I I just want to mention this as we begin, but we realize that when we read the book of Isaiah, it's something that Jesus and his apostles would have been incredibly familiar with. And we get to go back and read these, the same text and be familiar with these words together with Jesus and the apostles. Actually, the book of Isaiah is quoted, is the second most quoted book in our New Testament, uh, only second to the book of Psalms. So our New Testament authors were very familiar with the book of Isaiah. The second thing that uh, we can see in John is that John believed that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Now, you might think that's uh, 
Okay, uh, I, I, I could have told you that. Um, but uh, there is a big discussion and a majority now of scholars do not believe that Isaiah wrote Isaiah, but instead they believe in a second Isaiah and a third Isaiah. Uh, and that a lot of this was written actually after the Babylonian exile and they went back and put in words of the prophecy because the prophecy was a little too specific uh, in order to be fulfilled. Anyway, just know that a lot of people, if you're reading commentaries or uh, a study Bible or things like that, they may say to you, now Isaiah really only wrote uh, the first half of Isaiah, and then other people wrote the rest. Um, that is not our conclusion, uh, but instead we actually see John, for example, saying that Isaiah said, and he's quoting from actually Isaiah 53, which we read earlier, uh, Isaiah said, who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah the prophet wrote Isaiah. And we believe that Isaiah the prophet wrote these things. Now, were they compiled by uh, his followers? Yes. But Isaiah wrote these things and uh, someone compiled the writings of Isaiah together. I'll move on from that. There's more to say, but we'll move on from that. So uh, number three, John believed that Isaiah spoke about Jesus. That's significant, isn't it? Uh, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. He's referencing back to Isaiah 6, seeing the glory of God, seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of who? Spoke of Jesus. Now, this is big, big stuff here. So there is a very high view of the book of Isaiah from the apostle John. So when we turn to the book of Isaiah, we ought to, as we should, have a very high view of the book of Isaiah and what's being said in it. There is a lot to say. There is much to learn about the character and nature of God and Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us in the book of Isaiah. That being said, here's some basic information on the book of Isaiah. Who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah wrote Isaiah. When? 741 to 701 B.C. What was the audience? Who was he writing to? He was writing to the southern kingdom, also called Judah, who uh, was based out of Jerusalem. And what was the setting? What was happening then? This is before, during, and after the Assyrian threat. Now, that's a mouthful. I understand that. There's a lot of historical context here, obviously, isn't there? Uh, there is a timeline of scripture being laid out before us, and we're entering into something that has a lot of context. Now, what's the best way to understand and interpret the Bible and therefore apply it to your life? By understanding the Bible's context. So we must understand the Bible in its own terms, in its own context, so that we might draw proper truths and apply those truths appropriately, truthfully. Okay? Book outline. Here's what we have. It's, it's a mini Bible. Okay, how many books are in our Bible? 66. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. It's amazing. There are two parts to our Bible, an Old Testament and a New Testament. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. And how many are in the new? 27. The book of Isaiah is a little mini Bible because it's divided exactly like our Bible. The first 39 chapters are about one thing, and then the next 27 are about another. And so it's a very easy way to understand the context of Isaiah. Uh, pretty good, right? Okay. Now, when we approach Isaiah, there are four kingdoms Four earthly kingdoms that we need to keep in mind. This is important because when we read through Isaiah, you're going to hear a lot of city names, 
kingdom names. And if these are just names and they have no context, I don't know who those people are. By the way, have you ever been reading the Bible and it says the name of a people group or a city and you say, I have no idea who that is or where that is. So anyway, moving on till I find something more significant. We've all done that. We've all read and not known what exactly we're reading, but we move on to try to find some application points in the scriptures, right? But now actually understanding who these people are, where this is, I am telling you and I promise you draws far more rich understanding and application than simply skimming the surface and looking for just a basic understanding of the text, okay? So as we look at this, there are four kingdoms that we must keep in mind, and that is the southern kingdom, which is Judah, based out of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, I know that's confusing because both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, I know that's confusing. They're based out of Samaria. We'll talk more about that. And then there's Assyria, which is based out of Nineveh. Nineveh you've heard of because you heard of it in Jonah. And then Babylon, which conveniently is located in Babylon. Okay? We like that one. So... You might say, I, I might understand these things better if you had a map. I'm, I'm glad you thought that. So, as you know, I love maps, and here is our Isaiah map that I've created for our purposes as we study through the book of Isaiah together. So, what do we have? If you can kind of get your bearings, I put Egypt in there to kind of help us because we're zoomed in. So there's Egypt down there on the far left. Now there's Jerusalem, which is where the southern kingdom is, Judah, which is where Isaiah was living. Isaiah was living in Jerusalem as he was writing, and who was he writing to? The people of Judah, whose capital city was Jerusalem, so that's where all this is taking place, okay? But references are going to be made to Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that's where 10 tribes of Israel were located. Two tribes of Israel were located in the south, okay? So Samaria, we'll talk more about that, but then way over is Assyria, and there's the capital city, Nineveh. And yes, that is the same Nineveh that Jonah traveled to. By the way, just look at how far away from the water it is. And then Babylon, down in the south. Okay, this helps to get our bearings. It's important that we have a good mental grasp of the things that we're talking about. So now what I'd like to do is just walk you through a brief biblical timeline. And let me tell you, it is brief. I really struggled to get all this on two slides. Okay, I, I cut out a lot of dates. These are very important dates, though. Now, these are generalized dates. According to the biblical timeline, about the year 4,000, all these are B.C., okay? 4,000, creation. 2,400, the flood, things that we know about. About 2,000 was when God came to Abraham, and he called on Abraham. Uh, that was about the year 2,000. About 1,400, the law is given, and the Israelites enter into the promised land in Canaan. About 1,000 is when David and Solomon are around, story of David and Goliath, David, King David, King Solomon. Uh, that's about the year 1,000. Now, when Solomon dies, uh, he was king of Israel, but there was a, uh, really a struggle for power. When Solomon died, uh, there, were, there were these guys, Rehoboam uh, and Jeroboam, and they both kind of laid claim to uh, ruling. But anyway, there was kind of a mess. And so they said, well, we're going to split then. And the kingdom was split. So that's why there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It happened right here about the year 930. So now there are two groups of people. Israel to the north, 10 tribes, the majority. And then in the south, based out of Jerusalem, called Judah, because Judah and Benjamin were the two tribes that split. Uh, but anyway, they're located in the south, but that happened about 930. All right, next slide. 
Let's get us to Isaiah. All that has taken place before we get to Isaiah. Isaiah begins his prophetic career about the year 742, and it lasts for about 40 years. In the year 586, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and the people of Judah are led into Babylonian captivity. You see how far that journey was, right? You remember looking at the map where Jerusalem was, and they had to journey all the way over to Babylon. Uh, So, and then 539, the Jews are freed from captivity, and in 516, the temple is completed, and about the year 4 BC is when Jesus is born. Okay, so there's some big dates. Got all that? All right. Let's zoom in a little bit on what's happening in Isaiah's day. All this is taking us somewhere, and I don't ever, I don't ever want to assume something because then when I say something and you have a different context assumed, you might think something other than what I mean. I just want to be absolutely clear about what we are saying and what we're not saying. And I want to be very clear about what the Bible is saying and what it's not saying. And the best way we can understand what the Bible is saying is how? In its proper context, historically, and according to uh, the literature. Okay, so what's happening here? Events in Isaiah. About the year 745, which is just a few years before Isaiah begins his career, the Assyrian Empire is kind of rising to power. Uh, They become the dominant power throughout the entire known world at this time. Throughout this entire region, the big power, the big threat, they're going and they're taking down everybody, are the Assyrians. They come to power about the year 745 to the really the top of their power. In the year 722, they come to the northern kingdom based out of Samaria. They come to the northern kingdom and they take them down completely. They destroy the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom is gone. Then they make their way down to the southern kingdom and the southern kingdom is terrified because just like they took them down, they're going to take us down. So about the year 702, 701, Assyria invades Judah and that happens in chapters 36 and 37 in Isaiah. Okay, and so I want to start looking at a few passages in Isaiah because what we're doing is we're building specific context to lead us to chapter 43 because that's where we are, okay? What has happened up until chapter 43? Well, as you can tell, a lot. And we haven't even talked about most of the details. This is just the big stuff that's happened. What has happened in Isaiah 43? If we ignore the past, then we have no idea what's happening in Isaiah 43. So what has happened? Assyria has risen to power and taken out 10 tribes of Israel. And now Assyria was making their way to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to take it down. You can read about that in 2 Kings 18. Because it says, this is uh, beginning, this is just verses 9 and 10. Listen to what it says. In the fourth year of the reign of King Hezekiah, who was king of Judah, 
Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Okay, so you can read about that event uh, right there. Now, King Hezekiah started to reign in Judah when he was 25 years old. 25 years old. So in the fourth year, he's 29. He's 29 years old leading the southern kingdom of Israel. And here it is, the big global power coming to take down the kingdom of God. 29 years old. What is he to do? He's terrified for his life and for the kingdom. And he doesn't know what to do. Does that help you get into his mind and the mindset of, of, of Isaiah? Because Isaiah is speaking these prophecies and primarily they're going to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Isaiah is speaking directly to Hezekiah throughout most of this. Hezekiah is terrified and he's young. He doesn't know what to do. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. And we're in Isaiah 36, as I said, in the 14th year of his reign. And uh, let's look at, well, okay, if you were here on Wednesday, I already kind of covered what happened here, right? Uh, So I want to direct you to last Wednesday's message on the Lord's Prayer because I laid some context for that in prayer and what prayer accomplishes because what happens? The Assyrians come on Judah and they're right outside his city and Hezekiah prays and what happens? The angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 troops of the Assyrians instantaneously because Hezekiah prayed but also because God had ordained it, right? Right, so that's why you gotta go back and watch, okay? All right, so then, okay, all is good because the Assyrians go. They're, they're gone now because the Lord just displayed his power. Don't mess with my people, he said. So the Assyrians go back to where they came, and actually that begins their downfall as a nation. Babylon is now rising to power. But in the midst of that, something happens to Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets sick. And uh, he's going to die, and he prays to the Lord, and he says, Lord, don't let me die. And the Lord said, I won't let you die yet. I'm going to give you 15 more years of your life. Okay, you remember this story? So that's in Isaiah chapter 38. And then in chapter 39, which is the same time period, about the year 701, 702, right? This is the end of Isaiah's prophetic career. So everything we're about to read all was, was taking place within this time period. In Isaiah 39, it says, this is verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So here's what's happening. The Assyrians came. God took away that threat because Hezekiah was faithful and prayed. Then Hezekiah got sick. And he said to the Lord, please don't let me die. He gave him 15 years onto his life. But then as he is, uh, he's healed. Well, guess who heard about the fact that Hezekiah, king of Judah, was sick? Some guys in Babylon. The people in Babylon heard that Hezekiah was sick and that he got better. And they said, here's a great opportunity for us to show that we care. Care 
about the king of Judah. So they send some guys down to Judah, and they bring him gifts and letters. They, I mean, it was real nice on the surface. And then they, they visit Hezekiah, and they say, we're so sorry that you were sick, but you're better now. Uh, we're thankful that you're better. By the way, what you got going on here in this kingdom? What kind of stuff do you have? And so Hezekiah takes the men from Babylon and shows them every single one of his possessions and all that is in the house of God. And then this is said, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that is in your father's house and everything that you've stored up till this day, it's all, every bit of it that you just showed them, all of it is about to be led away to Babylon. Nothing will be left for you, says the Lord. And then he says, well, when is this going to happen, Lord? And uh, Hezekiah says, well, um, seems like it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So all is well. Thank you, Lord. Not a great response. But Hezekiah is kind of just happy that it's at least not going to happen in his lifetime. Anyway, moving on. I'll let the next king take care of that stuff. And that's where we are. What happens in chapter 40? So remember, the book of Isaiah is divided into two parts. There is the Assyrian threat in chapters 1 through 39, and then it becomes a Babylonian threat from chapters 40 to 66. So look at what it says. Just look with me at chapter 40, verse 1. I think I have it on the screen as well. Yes, I do. Chapter 40, verse 1, verses 1 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's good. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Oh, this is good. This is good stuff. This is what we've been wanting to hear. Thank you. We've gone through all these years of threat from other people. We're your people, Lord. By the way, what I'm saying to you has led to this point. The complaints of the people of Israel are the complaints of your heart to the Lord. When, Lord, are you going to speak comfort to us yet? I've gone through this life and it seems like, where is my comfort? Where is my comfort to be found? When are things just going to be good? When are things going to be easy? When are all the threats against me going to be taken away? When are things going to be right? If I am your child, if I have been redeemed, if you are the king of the universe, if all these things are true, if you are mine and I am yours, why is this stuff happening to me? When is the comfort of God coming? Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort is coming. Your warfare has ended. That's what we want to hear, isn't it? Ah, thank you. And then it says, oh, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Stop right there. Who is this in reference to? You know that, John the Baptist. So the comfort had not yet arrived for the people of Israel. This is in the year 701, 702. When did John the Baptist come on the scene? 700 years later. 700 years later. 
the true comfort of God was to be realized. So a huge theme here in the book of Isaiah that we have to gain context to is this. I summarize it by saying the comfort that God promised long ago has finally arrived in Jesus Christ. God promised comfort for his people, that their warfare was going to be ended, and God promised that it was going to be so. John 1, 22 and 23, um, is where we find this referenced. But it's actually significant, too, that do you know that we, we have three what's called synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke. And as you read those, you realize that there's a lot of shared material there because that's true, there was shared material. But then you have another gospel, John's gospel, which is not called a synoptic gospel, which means it does not run alongside. It just means that it's not sharing the same information. But when you have an event or a quote or something that appears in all four gospel accounts, it is significant, okay? This quotation appears in all four gospel accounts. In other words, this is very significant. Why? Because they all saw the same thing. The comfort that was promised to the people, the consolation of Israel. When are we going to be set free from our oppressors? Through Jesus Christ. Your comfort has arrived in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean then for the people of Israel at this time? Was there comfort to be found for them? Their comfort, their true comfort, wasn't coming for another 700 years. Just put that in context. 700 years from today would be the year 2722. That's a long time away. You want to wait that long to be comforted? They didn't know when it was coming, though, right? But God promised, and they believed that the comfort was coming, didn't they? Some of them did but they were judged for their unfaithfulness, which is why they are led to Babylon. God promises comfort. And this is something that we have to realize, that we have to have in our minds as we're reading the book of Isaiah together. So look with me now. We're moving to chapter 41. Chapter 41, verses 11 through 14. I do not have this on the screen, but you can look at it with me. Chapter 41, verses 11 through 14. Listen to what it says. Now, the last thing we read was in Isaiah 39, or Isaiah 40, which said, comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare is ended. That's it. Everything is good. But then look at what chapter 41 says, beginning in verse 11. Behold, all those increased against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. And those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. And it is I who say, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. I am your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Do you hear what's happening here? The whole struggle of the book of Isaiah is a people who are afraid and a God who is speaking peace and comfort to them. A people who are terrified and a God who says, you are mine, fear not. 
a people who go astray looking for other help, other gods, other nations. But God said, why did you look to them for help? Why did you go down to Egypt for help? Why did you look at foreign gods for help? Don't you see? I am the one who helps you. I am your redeemer. I am the one who's going to comfort you. Stop looking other places for comfort. I am the one who comforts you. But we're not like the people of Israel at all. We never seek other sources of comfort for our troubled lives. Or do we? It seems as though we commonly are seeking just like the people of Israel that although we have a gracious heavenly father who says to us, comfort, comfort, fear not, I have done this all for you. You are mine. And yet we try to find comfort for our troubled hearts in other places and other things. It says here, there are people increased against them. There are those who strive against them. There are those who contend against them. There are those who make war against them. But yet he had just said, your warfare is ended. The thing is that the warfare is ended in God's mind. He sees it as already accomplished, but it hasn't yet happened in history. People are going to come and make war with you, but don't be afraid. They're going to lead you away. Don't be afraid. They're going to contend against you. They're going to be increased all around you, but fear not. I am your God. I hold your right hand. We get that, don't we? I am right here beside you holding your right hand. And this is our God. Let's move to chapter 42. Chapter 2, verse 24. By the way, if you are uh, a regular here at FRC, you may be wondering, uh, is this all his introduction? Because we've, we've, been in, we've been doing this a little while here. We, uh, we take portions of Scripture and we walk through them uh, uh, as we go. What we're doing today is we're taking the first 43 chapters as our section of text today, and we're walking through it so as to prepare us for chapter 43, verses 8 through 15 next week. Okay? Just want to let you know where we're headed. I will not say, and now let's turn to our text for this morning. Okay, that's not coming. These are our texts, okay? Are you in chapter 42? Look at verse 24 with me. This is a very significant text. Please look at it with me. It says, Who gave up Jacob to the looter? In Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle, and it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. What is this a reference to? Well, it's a reference both to a past event and to a future reality. The past event is this, is that the Lord took the Assyrians by the hand and it says the rod that is in their hand is my anger against you. So the Lord sent the plunderers 
to Israel. Remember I told you the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom? Who did that? That's the big question. How did God possibly allow that to happen? It's not that he allowed it to happen. He's the one that made it happen. And right there, we start to have an aha moment, just like they did, because we ask the question, but is that really how God works? Can that be? Over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah, we have to answer that, yes, that is how God operates. The book of Isaiah tells us much about the character of God, who he is and how he operates with his people. And I think for many, it is very different than maybe what we assume how he operates with his people. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? It was the Lord who did that. So this is just our second point of summary. As we approach Isaiah's text and as we lead into chapter 43, this is just my second and final summary point for this morning. God desires above all things faith and devotion from his people. We know that to be true, yes? That's what he wants above all things. And he sovereignly ordains life circumstances to break down our pride and draw us to himself. So here's the big distinction that we have to make and how we have to have a kind of a mindset change as we approach circumstances in this life. I'm going to ask you a question about your own life, and you're going to, we all have to answer the same way. That is, if we belong to the Lord, if we have faith in Christ, if we have His Spirit working in us, and we're understanding our life situation, tell me, when were you most near the Lord? When you were your happiest and everything was going well, or when you were in the pits? Tell me. When you were in the pits. Well, good thing that randomly happened to draw me to the pits so that I might have faith increased in the Lord. Good thing that event randomly occurred. Or, thank God that in His grace, He brought about this circumstance because He cares about leading me into faithfulness. And He knows that what is going to lead me into faithfulness is despair. Do you realize that your despair in this life is never wasted? That should be one of the most encouraging things, the most encouraging biblical truths you ever hear. Your despair in this life is never wasted. And it is never by accident. We should not think that events randomly occur to us and all we need to do then is seek the Lord in prayer that he might stop the bad thing from coming on us because all I want is comfort. So, Lord, comfort me by not ever letting anything bad happen to me ever. That's the comfort that I desire. But what is the true comfort that God desires? A spiritual comfort from the heart that relies on the Lord in faith. And how is that accomplished? by leading us into the despair of the soul so that we have nothing left to cling to in this life but him. And so we are tempted in the moments of our despair and our conflict to say, why, Lord, 
when are you going to bring this comfort into my life that you promised through Jesus Christ? We sing about hope and comfort and joy and victory. We talk about all these things. When, Lord, am I going to experience this freedom and this comfort of my soul? Why are bad things happening to me? Not because they're by accident, but because the hand of your God, who is the king of the universe, who is sovereign, has ordained events in your life by his grace to lead you into despair so that you might cling to him in faith. This has happened on repeat in the book of Isaiah. And so as we come into understanding the text, we have to have this in our mind that the Lord has already been telling us this over and over and over and over again. This is how it works. And it is not something that we deserve. We do not deserve to be led into despair and for our hearts to ache and for us to realize we have nothing. We do not deserve to realize we have nothing. We deserve to think that we have everything and that we don't need God. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be outcasts. We deserve to not have faith in him. We deserve for him to not be gracious to us because that's what grace is. It's something you don't deserve. But God has graciously given us events in our life that lead us into despair. And what we are intended to do with those moments of despair is to place our faith in him and in him alone. Here's how it works. We get led into a place of despair. We rely on ourselves first. How can I get myself out of this mess? That doesn't work, so we go to friends and family. How can you help me get out of this mess that I've created? That's when the phone calls start and the email, the text messages and all this kind of stuff. What are you, you gotta, gotta, gotta help me, I got a disaster here. You know, so, and then, so we're, we're seeking out help and then we're like, okay, uh, I don't know uh, what to do here. And so you, you add something else and many times what we do, unfortunately, is we numb the pain by distractions of life or by being angry or by being depressed or by having anxieties. We do something else other than fleeing to our Lord for refuge and comfort. But eventually we hit rock bottom by the grace of God. It is not as though God doesn't care when you're in distress. No, it's because he loves you that you are in distress. Don't you see it? Your distress is not wasted. It's a grace of God so that you might, in your despair, cling to him. I have nothing else and the Lord has made that plain to me and now all I have is him. And you rejoice in that and all of a sudden, guess what you experience in that moment? The comfort found by faith in Jesus Christ. You experience that true spiritual comfort that your heart has so been longing for. And you cling to that and you rejoice for a time. And what happens? I was all in. And now, yeah, whatever. Anyway, back to life. Uh, now I'm concerned about normal stuff again. And uh, I, I distance and then, guess what happens? Like a cycle, like on repeat, what happens? We are led into despair. If your life has not been led into moments of despair where your heart aches so that you might cling to him, I would have to argue with you that this is a dry spell for you and although you might see it as the Lord's favor on your life, the Lord's favor many times looks like suffering. 
Who was the man who had the most favor on him? The name? No. Jesus, thank you. Starts with a J, go. Yep. <laughs> Jesus, who suffered most? You want to be like Jesus? Your life is going to be marked by suffering. But in our suffering, guess what we have? A comforted soul that rejoices always. It doesn't seem to go together, does it? So that's what makes us a unique, weird people. In the midst of distress, people look at us from the outside and they say, how are you dealing with that? How can you possibly make it through that? And you say to them, what? Because I have hope. I have been given every blessing in the spiritual places in Christ Jesus by faith. I have everything. Don't you see that? I have every reason to rejoice in the midst of this sorrow because I have been given everything by my God, by faith in Christ. How can I make it through this? Through faith in Christ. That's how. How can I have joy in the midst of sorrow? Through faith in Christ. That's how. Through a comforted soul. That's how. That is a testimony to the world that they need to see in us. But it only comes first from an understanding of what these events look like in our life. Because if you think bad events in your life look like God's disfavor, then you might doubt whether you are a child of God or not. But if you see these events as ordained by God and never wasted but intended for a particular reason, then you're going to say, I rejoice in this moment. So when trials come upon you, as James says, do what? You know what James says? When trials and temptations come upon you, rejoice. For you know that the testing of your faith produces godliness in summary. If you've forgotten that, go back and read what James has to say about these things. We're going to end our time together in uh, just two passages, and I'll just make a few comments on them. Uh, The first is Isaiah 22, and uh, then we're going to go to 1 Peter 5 and and, kind of wrap up some concepts here. And then next week, Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 15 will be our text, okay? Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 8, and it reads, He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked up to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You, can, you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, for wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. That sounds like bad news. What are they saying? When these people come up upon you, this army comes up upon you, you're going to look to everything you can do to fix it, but who are you not looking to? The one who did it. 
the one who did it, not just the one who is there, you know, kind of waiting around until stuff happens and then he does what he can to fix it. But no, he is the one who did it. Why did you not look to him? And so in chapter 38, verse 17, Hezekiah summarizes this because you remember that Hezekiah was sick and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord added 15 years to his life. I just want to look at one verse and see what Hezekiah's summary of the situation was. He said, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, and you have cast all my sins behind your back. I used to have a different verse that I could use uh, as a summary. If I could pick one verse in all of Isaiah to summarize the book of Isaiah, this is my new verse that I would pick to summarize the book of Isaiah. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had bitterness. It was for me that God did these things. And he has cast all my sins behind his back. This is, this is God operating in the midst of the people. So what I'd really like for you to take away from today is we have looked at many texts. We have looked at much historical background. For those of you who love this kind of thing, you are all in it and you are taking notes and you are loving it. For others of you, this is not your cup of tea. This is not a history lesson. This is a sermon. And so, you know, but you know what? We need to gain our context. We need to get into this properly so that we're all seeing things from the same eyes so that we can study this and learn together as we start to walk through text a little bit at a time because a text is never without its context and we need to know its context in order to have rich application, which you have already seen. There is rich application to be had in the book of Isaiah. But I'd just like to end our time this morning in 1 Peter 5. Yep, that's in the uh, far end, right-hand side of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, if you turn there with me. So just remember our summary about the book of Isaiah is that there is a people who is God's people. These people are cared for and loved by God. The problem is that the people are not being faithful. They are looking at other things. They are tra- they're not being faithful to him always from the heart. And so God is bringing events in their life to turn them to distress, that their hearts might be changed. And then God, he continues to say, I, I brought this upon you so that you would look to me, but you didn't even look to me when I did it. What God desires is that we would humble ourselves before him and rely on him alone as our God and as our King. Is that kind of concept ever repeated in our New Testament? I think there is a great place to look, which is 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Pause right there. Comfort, comfort my people. Fear not, my people. I hold your right hand, my people. Don't be afraid. Why might we have anxieties and be fearful? Because bad stuff is potentially happening to us or is happening to us. We are a people who are prone to anxieties and fears. And God says to us on repeat, do not be afraid. I'm in control. It's okay. I'm here with you. 
I have you and you are mine. Instead, here's how we ought to be. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Who is it who's suffering? The brotherhood. The believers are suffering throughout the world. And then verse 10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Did you see it? Do you see the cycle? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And to those things we say, amen. Let's pray together.